0: Welcome to Political OD episode 39. A lot happening on, biggest thing happening this weekend, the coronation. Will you be watching?
1: I think so. Um, I mean, it's a sort of generational event. It's going to be something that most of us will remember um, for a long time. And it's also, you know, a chance to see traditions, emblems, Aspects of history that um, haven't been seen for a long time, you know, might might be the only coronation that happens during our lifetime. It calls upon history that goes back for over a thousand years. So I think there's certainly a lot of it that I'll be interested to see, and I hope that it's a kind of and kind of a binding experience for for the nation.
0: It is very much a moment, isn't it? It's a moment in 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 the nation's life uh, in terms of the passing of one generation to another and also a moment where I guess all that reflection and we've all heard the 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 marginals come out uh, you know shouting about time for a new republic and time for a constitution change time for everything else but it really has been something that I think people are co- coalescing around uh, as an event that is important for the nation in some way or other uh, even in that British way if we don't quite know what that is it's still important to us as art of our memories, our collective memories, our, our, our heritage?
1: Well I suppose because as a nation as a nation state we've tended to evolve as opposed to you know we, we weren't a product of of 19th century romantic nationalism or separatism. That there's never been a moment where somebody sat down and drafted out all these things in paper. So it it is something that's difficult to explain. It's something that we feel more than you can put into words necessarily, but you know if you take it as a snapshot of the nation, an opportunity to have a snapshot of the nation, and you talk about the kind of marginal voices, I think what's noticeable is just how marginal those voices are at the moment, even though we have struggled with separatism in Scotland, in Northern Ireland, even in Wales to a certain extent the kind of idea, the Republican ideas that would have been, maybe I think, and I I might be wrong about this because it wasn't really a time that I was politically aware, but sort of in the 70s and early 80s and that kind of thing. I think those have dwindled away really to become the most marginal of the marginal. You you barely hear them articulated and there will be protesters at the events on Saturday and Sunday. There will be people who still think that the... monarchy is a relic or that it doesn't provide a constitutional bulwark against sort of extremism and other forms of of turbulence for the United Kingdom. But I think those voices have really both been proven wrong over the years, and they've been edged out in a way that makes them kind of irrelevant. That in itself is a vote of confidence or a sign of strength of uh, our royal family and our monarchy. And it just shows that what the Queen left to King Charles was in an unusually healthy position, given some of the challenges that she faced during her reign, some of the issues that there have been um, with members of her family, some of the turbulent events that that, that the monarchy uh, sort of saw off during the 20th and the early 21st century.
0: You know, we always look at it in just, a, a I suppose, in a... The British, United Kingdom sense, but the monarchies of Europe, particularly those of, of liberal democracies, of long-standing states that have evolved into strong liberal democracies, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Netherlands, even Belgium, to, to, to that extent, they have managed to hold that sense of history and something that is more than just a constitution more than a bit of paper.
1: Well, I've been thinking about this um, in the sort of run up to writing a bit about it over this weekend, um, David, and, and sort of calling up a few quotes. I know Roger Scruton called the, the monarchy a light that uh, was above politics. In other words, it, it was something that called upon people's loyalties and bound them together and gave them a sense of allegiance that was above the sort of day-to-day debates and anxieties that politics are made up of really and so it does provide a very valuable symbol and a very valuable sort of rallying point in that respect and you're talking there about countries that have a long tradition of constitutional constitutional monarchy and i suppose in a sense you know the united kingdom britain england is the place that has the longest tradition of that constitutional monarchy where the parliament where it's the king or queen in parliament, both deliberately taking a political backseat and also that has evolved over time and been a product of history. So it is an institution that's remarkably successful and it has played a role in keeping the United Kingdom um, as, as a state somewhere where extremists have never really prospered and uh, where we do have a, a sort of quiet sense of Allegiance that's based It can be based in patriotism but it's not based in a sort of virulent form of nationalism and it's not calling upon an, an invention of kind of romantic nationalist myths or ideas that that that, 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 are, that you know date from much uh, more recently and and sort of call upon um sort of shibboleths that that, that are that are ultimately a little destructive.
0: And when all that goes wrong, just moving on, uh, I think we've we've recently seen the the, the Queen of Scots, Nicholas Sturgeon, fall off her throne and <laughs> her 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 court thrown into turmoil. I mean, it's been quite a sight um, these past well, God, it, I was going to say these past months, but it really is only about a month or so that that we've seen the complete fall of mm-hmm. the House of Sturgeon. Uh, it been quite a remarkable change in the politics of Scotland all of a sudden
1: fall of the house of sturgeon well there's the title for the mini series, i guess whenever that comes out in channel four or whenever netflix sign it up um but yes i mean I, i suppose if you wanted to date this back to an event or if there's a timeline for it you could go back to january when um she introduced this kind of controversial gender legislation but things really have picked up momentum and it's a bit of a you know moot point whether that was actually the start of it, or whether there were other coincidental things going on in the background that really overturned this very kind of personalised form of leadership and this almost incestuous form of leadership where she had a coterie around her, including her husband, who was the chief executive of the party, and things were decided among this uh, small you know, SNP uh, elite that uh, was also, you know, has proved ultimately to be subject to factionalism within the party. There was also the the falling out, of course, between uh, before that between Sturgeon and, and Alex Salmond, which showed how, again, how personalised things were and how factional things were. And,
0: and yet I- the SNP ruled all. The SNP wasn't damaged by the split between Sturgeon and her mentor, Salmon. You know the SNP juggernaut kept going. I, and what I find remarkable is that, to me, the, the thing that absolutely threw everything in disarray was an argument over the number of members the SNP had. That, that seemed to be the point at which all hell broke, broke loose, and Merle had to resign as chief executive, and, and everything just went to pot from that point. So it wasn't the disastrous reorganisation of the police in Scotland. It wasn't the standard of education dropping. The enormous waiting lists in the health service. Uh, you know, £400 million spent on ferries that have never sailed and, and, and uh, your know, contract ending up not in Scotland but in Turkey. The complete disarray of policy and implementation across government departments. None of that in any way impacted on the SNP electorally. And yet all of a sudden we see a complete breakdown because they couldn't decide how many members they had or that there was an accusation of lying about how many members they had in the party. It, it just seems remarkable.
1: Yes, it seemed impervious to the kind of failures that it had in a policy basis. And, and yet it called upon these extremely emotional sort of arguments where it was fostering really grievances against the Westminster Parliament and and uh, grievances against the English and the idea that the Scots were more progressive than the English and using all these tropes and uh, sort of divisive techniques to keep its stranglehold in power at the same time as it was very controlling of the narrative in Scotland. And I mean, you, you pointed out, um, I think, uh, maybe among the, the failures of the SNP, the disaster that is the NHS and also the care home debacle in Scotland, yes. which was, if anything, worse than it was um, elsewhere really? because of unique decisions made by the SNP. And yet, at the time, Sturgeon managed to come out of it seeming like this person who was bestriding the crisis and, and had was on top of it, rather, rather than getting uh, really buffeted about by it. And she did that by... Controlling the narrative so closely and uh, sort of bullying the broadcasters into allowing her to present this this kind of unchallenged idea that she was um, doing such a good job.
0: The point that I guess has been made repeatedly is that the rise of the SNP was to some extent because there was such a weak opposition as well. Labour spent long years not really knowing what it was there for, what, what to do with devolution, passed being the natural party of government, which it always believed it was going to be in Scotland. Uh, the Conservatives falling out with its centre uh, in Westminster, but n- not actually having its own distinctiveness or ability to grab onto some of the things that might have held it together in Scotland. The Lib Dems just disappearing, it seems, uh, in, in, in Scotland altogether, despite the fact that they once had a very strong presence. They can't just sit and wait for the SNP to completely disintegrate, because I don't think that's really how it works. There doesn't have to be an election in Scotland now until there might be local elections, but there won't be a general election. The next big election is going to be uh, the general election. The SNP may lose votes, but it still doesn't mean the SNP is going to disappear. And I haven't seen either the Conservatives or Labour really press the SNP in the past couple of months, despite its implosion.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can't deny that the SNP was astute tactically and was able to build a kind of formidable election machine, but it did kind of fill a vacuum that had been left in particular by Labour, but also mm-hmm. by the Conservative Party, which withered away to nothing in Scotland. And then the Labour Party kind of followed it from being really the dominant force. And it was left, the SNP was left to to fill that gap. Um, but that's not the way that things mm-hmm. inevitably work and particularly with established parties they don't just sort of wait their time and and make a comeback just by hanging around and we've seen that um particularly with the ulster unionist party in northern ireland there was always this kind of attitude among ulster unionists that they'd been it's cheated by the, the the democratic unionist party and all they had to do was uh, hang around until at some point the, the democratic unionist party would fall apart and voters would just naturally come flocking home to the Ulster Unionist Party. And they've seen throughout the years that that's just not the way that politics works. You've got to offer people something on your own behalf um, because they'll not just come back to you because the other guys are, are falling apart or are so bad. If, if the Conservatives and the Labour Party don't get their act together and offer something uh, to Scotland's voters, then you know the SNP, the fallout, may not be so bad and also um you know it, it's not going to see this kind of great realignment that that could come about if they play their cards right. And I mean they, the Scottish Tories did show signs of life under Ruth Davidson as much as you sort of may have difficulties with um with her approach and what she did, but they've seemed a bit more abundant and again Labour. Are they showing signs of life or not? I mean it depends really upon who you ask and how you judge it.
0: For all the opinion polls and all the rest the only ones that matter of course are are the ones where the voters go into the in into the ballot box and and put their X or their ones or twos or threes or whatever that has the consequences that that, that last at the end of the day you'll know, be on t- at least the end of next year before we find out what where the is standing in the electorally of course we've got two elections coming up uh, within the next few weeks uh today. Uh, As we're uh, recording this podcast, England is going to the polls at local elections. Well, about a third of it is, uh, mostly in uh, what you call Shire counties, I think. It's predominantly uh, more uh, outside the cities and metropolitan areas. I guess everybody will be trying to analyse these polls and sort of, well, what what, what would be the impact if those votes were somehow extrapolated out? I think it's very difficult in local elections to extrapolate uh, results. Uh, in in a in in any meaningful way, because I th- I think I, I listened to something earlier today where the person was pointing out that in 1992, of course, the Conservatives did dreadfully in the local elections, and yet John Major still won uh, in 1992 for the Conservative Party. Theresa May, of course, did appallingly badly in the local elections, and then of course Boris bount- uh, Boris bounced back with an 80 seat majority uh, shortly after. So. I, th- I think you can take them at a level, but I don't think we should overanalyze. And probably the same of the elections in Northern Ireland, where the Ulster Unionists will always do slightly better because they've got some long-established candidates that will have a big personal vote. Uh, Though I notice a number of those respected candidates are retiring this time around. I know Jim Spears Leaving in Armagh and Norman Hills isn't standing in Causeway Coasts. You know, th- there's going to be a bit of a change there, but it's going to be interesting to see how it falls out. But I'm not sure we should analyze it into anything in particular.
1: There are a lot of dynamics to take into account. And I mean, just from the perspective of the English elections, particularly council elections, local elections, they're seen as a, an opportunity to deal the government of the day a bloody nose, even when that government isn't doing particularly badly. Now, I do happen to think that in this case, the government has um almost gone past the point of no return, and that probably it uh, Rishi Sunak does have an uphill battle to try and get back into any kind of winning position for 2024 but there's all kinds of complicated stories going on there in england about what is traditional conservatism and whether natural conservatives are going to vote for the party or take an opportunity to you know send a a shot across the bows um all kinds of things uh, like that and northern ireland maybe that's not the case to such an extent but it's different to you know previous elections where it's all been about um, issues that would be decided at assembly or parliamentary level, the kind of big political issues, if you will. Because yes, as you point out, there are a lot of kind of personalities on a local level who command a certain amount of you know affection, uh, if you want to call it that, or loyalty, or or whatever from from people who they've helped and and uh, and who know their um, sort of profile from. local area so it it is a very different thing the Ulster Unionists have traditionally always done quite well at that because they've got quite a a large party at that level and because they've got personalities who are who are known but at the same time you know you just wonder you have heard for example how they're perhaps standing too many candidates in in some areas or that's the perception anyway and how that will play out whether they'll have managed their vote in a particularly clever way.
0: Like I said, I'm I'm not going to uh, overanalyze our local elections. Um, I think it's just important uh, for unions to go out there and vote. Uh, Basically, uh, you know, whatever you think of whatever party uh, or uh, another party, it's important to go out and vote. Uh, I think the biggest difficulty for unions at the moment is just that lack of enthusiasm for any party, uh, which means people will, stay at home, which I think is the worst thing. That that may also be a big factor in England where Conservatives aren't necessarily not Conservatives but aren't necessarily exactly invigorated to get up, get out and put a vote in the ballot box. Uh, I think that's going to be a
1: big, big uh, change. And and while we say that you can overemphasise the significance of local government elections, and of course that's true, you can be absolutely guaranteed if people don't get out and vote um, that their sort of absence of uh, of expressing an opinion will be used to kind of advance the narrative that exactly that, that they're not um uh typical of, of of people in Northern Ireland and 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 used to advance the the, the kind of idea that uh, opinions moving in a different direction
0: the the only thing that might even do some to get up maybe was the uh Good Friday Festival that happened at Queens the other week where it seems that we just had a a constant berating of unionism from an audience of South Belfast bubbleheads. that simply, it was just about getting at the DEP. Very little self-reflection in terms of why haven't we really come as far as we ought to have in 25 years?
1: Yeah, there wasn't really a lot of reflection on how well the Belfast Agreement had worked over the years and whether that might have been in some way down to the way that it was implemented, or the provisions that were in the text in the first place—I mean, it was just very much uh, a slap on on the back kind of session. And didn't we do well? And aren't we still the type of people who should be driving well, the, uh, the, the the political uh, climate in in Northern Ireland? For that reason, I don't think that it will. If it was, if some people saw it as a chance to maybe reach unionists with arguments about, perhaps about restoring Stormont or to change unionists' minds about how politics were going in Northern Ireland at the moment or the uh, emphasis on the framework or the emphasis on the protocol or whatever. I don't think that they did a very good job because the tone was rather lecturing. It was dismissive of unionist concerns about uh, you know being divided from their Nation state by a trade and and um regulatory border, so I feel that in a sense it was counterproductive, and in a sense it was completely irrelevant because you know two weeks later we've all forgotten about it. Let's face yes. it, <laughs> can't remember one single speech.
0: Um, there was nothing of any consequence at all, was there?
1: I don't uh, think Bertie Ahern could mention uh, could uh, remember his speech at the time that he was making it. Judging well, by sort of <laughs> crazy.
0: Yeah, um, I don't think there was anything profound uh, said across the few days. All a bit flat. I'm sure they thought it was great. I'm sure uh, Queen's raised a lot of money off the back of it for its various institutes and and, and itself. The person to have come off worse, perhaps, has been the Secretary of State. I don't know what the NIO were thinking in allowing him to make that speech or even giving him that speech to make. Uh, I mean, it really did put people's backs up. The the notion now of simply beating us over the head with a budget. The one thing I haven't heard anyone say is how exactly they would plan a budget if it wasn't being imposed by Chris heaton Harris. I mean, that's the bit that you know, all this pressure on the on you know the DP have to get back because if we don't get back Stormont, um, you know, this budget is going to be disastrous. Right. And coming back to Stormont, how do you think that's going to change? Esmond Bernie was quite quite on the ball that I guess they're all imagining that somehow they're going to get a load more money to get Stormont restarted, which will simply once again put off the day. They have to actually sit down and and properly plan a budget. This is just the perpetual lack of ability in setting a budget and managing a framework for services in Northern Ireland.
1: Well, the suggestion now is that there could be Bung or whatever you want to call it, of uh, some one billion quid um, to get back to the government at Stormont. Now, we've learned two things through the various crises through the years. First is that that figure will be nowhere nearly accurate because it will consist of monies that were already spent, <laughs> um, either spent or coming to Northern Ireland in some form anyway. And secondly, that if you continue to do that, then the kind of uh, misspending... Uh, that's been happening in Northern Ireland, the sort of financial uh, incompetence that has led to such overspends and to such issues over the years will no doubt continue. And this is where, you know, Chris Heaton-Harris, we've had a series of absolutely appalling secretaries secretaries of state, and particularly in in recent years, and all Chris Heaton-Harris had to come and do was just be not quite as bad as the likes of, say, Julian Smith, or Karen Bradley but you know he spectacularly failed to do that and he's one of the worst that we've ever had surely his uh, comments about uh, Sinn Féin and this these attempts to browbeat unionists I- I- into restoring Stormont on the basis that he will apply this punitive budget but what's wrong with his diagnosis at its basis is that he thinks that Stormont is both the cause of and the answer to all Northern Ireland's problems to paraphrase Homer Simpson. The the fact that it was incompetent in the first place has have given has given us these um, problems with the budget, and the solution to them is to bring uh, is to bring our executive back for more of the same. I mean, it's just it doesn't make any sense, and this is exactly what will happen if we indulge this kind of thinking. Oh, come back, lads! We'll give you enough money to sort of get over problems that you had you'll not have to implement any difficult decisions you'll not have to reform the health service you'll not have to instigate water charges you can keep having free prescriptions you can keep having freebies uh for for people of pension age so that they can travel around the country or down to dublin for absolutely nothing you can have it all you'll never have to do anything unpopular you'll never have to take responsibility for anything The only thing that you do have to do is keep the show up and up and running and turn a blind eye to uh, fundamental issues with the Constitution, like driving a border down the Irish Sea. You know, it's just a laughable proposition. And from a so-called Conservative Secretary of State, it's particularly bad. Well, it's particularly
0: bad because they, you know, a conservative government is maybe one that looks after money. I, I think that's been the problem. Of course, Rishi Sunak is, of course, trying to fix a problem that he largely created through his COVID years. Um, he was the guy who was spending money like it was no tomorrow. Uh, you can talk about crisis to to an extent, um, but I think he spent well beyond
1: um, what was necessary in that period, um, needlessly and and purposelessly. Um, it's kind of a a recurrent feeling of conservative governments isn't it though that it they, seems to be yeah they talk the the they talk the language of the free market and liberalism and then when they get into power, they do something very different whether very it's very, very Heath very different. or or Boris uh, Johnson during covid or whether it's Rishi sunak at, um at the current time
0: yeah I don't think there's a lot of pressure on the DUP to go back into Stormont uh, uh, at this point in time. Um, we'll have to wait and see how that all pans out. Uh, elections, 18th May. Unionists, get out and vote. We'll have known what the English votes are like then, and I'm sure that it'll get slightly buried by the coronation. Uh, have a good day Saturday. Enjoy your uh, enjoy watching at least some of it. and We'll catch up maybe before the summer and see if anything's moved anywhere.
1: Look forward to it, David.
0: Cheers, not.